A word of caution. This episode discusses details of murder that will be difficult to hear, as well as examples of child abuse. Discretion is advised for anyone under the age of 13. State law in North Carolina requires that parents and other caregivers report missing children within 24 hours of their disappearance. This law, named Kaylee's Law, was passed in 2013 following the Casey Anthony case in Florida. The law says it is a Class I felony for a parent or any other person providing care or supervision to someone younger than 16 years of age to knowingly or wantonly fail to report the disappearance of a child to law enforcement. According to an article published in the Charlotte Observer last week, a teacher is not required to report a child's absence if the teacher otherwise follows the state's attendance law. State law recommends a principal or other administrator should reach out to a parent or guardian when a child has accumulated three unexcused absences in a school year. Once a child hits six unexcused absences, the parent or guardian will receive a letter from the school saying they could be prosecuted under the state's attendance law. It is then that the attendance counselor at a school may request that a law enforcement officer accompany him or her if the attendance counselor believes a home visit is necessary. This is how the Cornelius Police Department, located one town over from me, realized an 11-year-old girl named Madalena Kojikari had been missing since late November. For this episode, I'd like to discuss the details of her case, as well as two other local cases where young girls who were recorded as being homeschooled were not reported missing in a timely manner by their parents. There is much to love about North and South Carolina, but the two states have also had their fair share of violent and senseless crimes over the years. From murders on the Blue Ridge Parkway, in the heart of big cities or sleepy college towns, and along the coastal waters, some of these stories may be new to you. Some may have happened in your town. Some may involve people that are still missing to this day, but all will leave you remembering to always be vigilant about the people you meet and the places you go. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 52, Not Reported Missing. Madalena Kojikari's story has been all over both local and national news outlets. It's been a bit surreal to drive by the middle school a mile from my house and see news vans set up to record B-roll footage as reporters have tried to keep the community updated. I've been hesitant to discuss the case because the details about her mother and stepfather's behavior sound very similar to two other cases in North Carolina I'm going to discuss later in the episode. Here is a timeline of what we know so far about Madalena's disappearance. A counselor from Bailey Middle School visited Madalena's home on December 12, 2022, in response to excessive school absence. No one answered the door, and a notice was left. Two days later, her mom, Diana Kojikari, age 37, called the counselor back and requested a meeting. She said she would bring Madalena in. When she arrived, though, the little girl wasn't with her. 
Police first interviewed Madalena's mother at the school on December 15th. When asked why she didn't report her daughter missing sooner, she told police she was worried it might start a conflict between her and her husband, Christopher Palmiter. Another police document filed with the court quotes Kojikari as saying her husband put her family in danger. No further details about what was meant by danger are included in the document. The Charlotte Observer reported that Diana said she contacted family members in Moldova, the Eastern European country where she's from, who urged her to call police after the child went missing, but she didn't follow their advice. Police visited the home in Cornelius on December 15th and reported they found an area in the home near the kitchen blocked with plywood. Madalena's stepfather, 60-year-old Christopher Palmiter, told police that the family was planning to build a separate apartment there. The next day, the Cornelius Police Department requested the help of the FBI. On December 17th, they announced that Christopher Palmiter had been arrested for failure to report a missing child, and his wife Diana was arrested a few hours later for the same charge. On December 19th, investigators searched the lake located next to the neighborhood where the family lived. The search did not result in any new leads. When questioned further, Diana said she first noticed her daughter missing on November 23rd. The night before her disappearance, she and her husband had apparently been arguing. Madalena went to bed around 10 p.m. The next morning, Christopher said he drove to a family home located in Michigan to pick up items. He told police he hadn't seen Madalena for at least a week prior to her disappearance. Diana said she went to check on Madalena at 11.30 a.m. on November 23rd and found she wasn't in her bedroom. She didn't ask Christopher if he knew where Madalena was until he returned three days later on November 26th. Investigators located camera footage of Madalena getting off the bus the afternoon of November 21st, around 5 p.m., the last time anyone can confirm seeing her in person. Most recently, unsealed search warrants show that authorities confiscated three cell phones from the family's North Carolina home and more than two dozen other items. From what I understand, Madalena did not have a cell phone. Earlier this month, the Cornelius Police Department asked anyone who may have witnessed Diana Kojikari traveling to call investigators. They believe that at some point between November 22nd and December 15th, Diana may have driven a Toyota Prius to Madison County, North Carolina, located in the western part of the state. Diana Kojikari and Christopher Palmiter remain in jail, as neither have been able to make their individual bonds set at over $200,000. Madalena Kojikari was last seen wearing jeans, pink, purple, and white Adidas shoes, and a white t-shirt and jacket. She is 4 feet 10 inches tall, has dark brown hair, and weighs about 90 pounds. Investigators ask anyone with information on Madalena's whereabouts to call the Cornelius Police Department at 704-892-7773 or the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. To remain anonymous, call North Mecklenburg Crime Stoppers at 704-896-7867. Next, 
I'd like to discuss the case of Zara Baker from Hickory, North Carolina. In October of 2010, her biological father reported her missing. From almost the very beginning, investigators thought something was suspicious about the details Adam Baker and stepmother Elisa Baker shared. First, her father Adam called 911 at 5.30 a.m. on October 9th to report a fire in his backyard. While there, responding officers found a bizarre ransom note on Adam's work vehicle. It was addressed to Mark Coffey, who was the owner of the landscaping business Baker was employed by. Mark Coffey also owned the home Adam was renting at the time. The ransom note read, Mr. Coffey, you like being in control. Who is in control now? We have your daughter, and your pot-smoking red-headed son is next, unless you do what is asked. One million dollars, unmarked, will be in touch soon. Underneath the demand, the words, no cops, were scribbled. It wasn't until hours later, around 2.30 p.m., that Adam Baker called 911 again, saying his wife had alerted him Zara, who wore a prosthetic leg, was missing. Her hearing aid remained in the house. And then he said this to the 911 operator. And my daughter is, I think, coming into puberty because she is hitting that brooding stage. So we only see her when she comes out when she wants something. And that's about it. He laughed when he said this. The red-headed, freckled Zara was born in Australia to Emily Dietrich and Adam Baker. But her mother Emily suffered from a severe case of postpartum depression, and she gave sole custody to Adam when Zara was still an infant. Emily Dietrich later told reporters she had tried to reconnect with her daughter over the years, but said Adam Baker moved constantly and failed to keep in touch. She didn't even know her daughter had moved to the U.S. until three days before Zara was reported missing in early October. Zara was born hearing impaired and was a cancer survivor, which resulted in the loss of her left leg. An article that ran in the Sydney Morning Herald described Zara's childhood, where she spent most of her time in the care of her father and his mother. Daycare providers recalled Zara as a happy child who always came to school clean and with a smile on her face. Her father and grandmother cared for her throughout her cancer treatments, which she went to in addition to attending school. She eventually received a prosthetic leg that she wore in place of her missing limb. Things took a turn for the worse for Zara when Adam met a 40-year-old woman named Elisa Fairchild. She had been married seven times and, according to investigators, wasn't actually divorced when she married Adam Baker in 2008. They met online. Elisa, who lived in Hickory, used a fairy avatar with angel red wings on an instant messaging virtual universe website. She called herself Goth Fairy. She was several years older than Adam, and before long, he had made the decision to move to the United States with Zara in order to start a new life with Elisa. One of Adam's friends told the Sydney Morning Herald that she thought Elisa seemed to tell a lot of outlandish stories about herself that probably weren't true. Adam's mother was upset at the thought of her son and granddaughter moving so far away, as it seemed like a quick and impulsive decision. The new family moved to Hickory first, 
where they lived with Elisa's father until he asked them to leave, reportedly due to Elisa's drug use. Then they moved to Granite Falls, where their landlord asked them to leave after about six months. The reason? She said Adam and Elisa were constantly fighting and being disruptive. They were also behind on their rent. She never saw Adam go to work, and Zara was barely seen. From there, they moved to a trailer park in Hudson, and it was here that neighbors later told police they had seen Elisa beating Zara and forcing her to walk long distances through the neighborhood on her prosthetic leg, while ridiculing her and hitting her. One neighbor, a woman named Tanya Hefner, was so disturbed she confronted Elisa, contacted the local police, and reported what she had witnessed to the elementary school Zara was attending. Two teachers had also visited the home after witnessing the little girl with a black eye. The Department of Social Services visited the Baker home when they lived in Caldwell County and met with family and neighbors. The agency at the time said they found no evidence of abuse. By the time they had received another concerned call, the family had moved to Catawba County. Catawba County DSS said they found no evidence Zara was mistreated or abused. Police believe Zara died at the home on September 24, 2010. It was 15 days later that Adam said he finally noticed she wasn't in the home any longer. During the investigation, a reporter asked Adam Baker why he hadn't noticed his daughter was missing sooner. His response was, Elisa's uh, very manipulative, abusive, and controlling. With the pressure of work, I was gone first thing in the morning. Didn't get home until late. I was told that Zara was in bed because Zara normally went to bed early. I checked every night. From what I could tell, she was in bed. There was something in bed. On October 10, 2010, Elisa Baker was charged with obstruction of justice after police said she admitted to writing the phony ransom note. The search for Zara continued. On October 25th, Elisa led investigators to three different sites in Caldwell County where some of Zara's body parts had been discarded, according to court documents. At each site, she described what would be found there and told the officers where to look. They later identified a bone, determined to be Zara's, other human remains, and a dump site where Zara's mattress and other belongings from the house were. Police went on to recover the gel liner from Zara's prosthetic leg and some skeletal remains. On November 12th, police announced the test results confirmed a bone they recovered was Zara's. On February 21st, 2011, Elisa Baker was charged with second-degree murder. Zara's autopsy was released and declared the cause of her death as undetermined homicidal violence. On November 2012, Zara's skull was found in Caldwell County. In September of 2011, Elisa Baker pleaded guilty to murdering Zara and was sentenced to 18 years in prison. In March 2013, the Charlotte Observer reported Elisa Baker had been sentenced to 10 years in federal prison for conspiracy to distribute prescription drugs. She was already serving a term between 14 years and 9 months 
and 18 years to six months after pleading guilty to second-degree murder in Zara's death. She was indicted in May 2011 by a federal grand jury. After investigators accused her of being part of a group that distributed hydrocodone, oxycodone, and Xanax pills over a four-year period, ending in October 2010. After her conviction, Elisa spoke to WSOC TV reporter Dave Faraday, where he asked her if she had murdered Zara. She said no, that Zara had been sick with a stomach virus and died in the home. She said it was a mistake not to call 911 when Zara died. She claimed Adam was the one responsible for dismembering the remains of his daughter and disposing of them. But he was never charged. Cell phone records placed Elisa in the areas where Zara's remains were found. At the time, Adam Baker was in Conover at work, where witnesses backed up his location. It appears Adam Baker returned to Australia after Elisa's conviction. An editorial that ran in the February 23, 2011 issue of the Charlotte Observer titled Many Adults Felled 10-Year-Old Zara provided a sobering view of abused children in the state of North Carolina. It shared that many family members had reported Zara was being abused by her stepmother, Elisa Baker, and social service agencies in both Catawba and Caldwell counties acknowledged they had investigated four different complaints that the little girl was being abused. The last Department of Social Services investigation was closed six weeks before authorities say Zara was murdered on September 24th. The article concluded with this statement. Only we adults can change that outcome for children such as Zara. North Carolina law requires all adults to report suspected child maltreatment. We must do so. You do not need proof that maltreatment has occurred. You only need reasonable cause to suspect maltreatment. We can also help parents or caregivers whom we suspect of being abusive. Talk to them about the children in their care and refer them to resources that can help them provide a safe environment for their kids. Children depend on adults. All of us must commit to being there to protect them and act to ensure they are. The National Child Abuse Hotline is 1-800-4-A-CHILD. Before we continue, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. It's winter time. I don't know about you, but my skin is always in desperate need of moisture during this time of year. And well, if I'm to be honest, all the other months of the year too. But I don't like to experiment with a lot of different products at high price points if they aren't going to work for me. A few years ago, I came across a woman named Erin Sanderson on Instagram, and once I saw her demo the skincare products she had created, I decided to give them a try. I was hooked from the first drop. I use her pre-cleanse oil, hydrating beauty oil, and perfecting night oil. The pre-cleanse gently removes dirt, impurities, and even waterproof makeup without tugging, all without stripping or drying out your skin. In addition to keeping your skin clear, it also helps your skin feel firmer and reduces the signs of aging. The Hydrating Beauty Oil is a powerful and effective skin hydrator that never leaves your skin feeling greasy. The Signature Squalene Oil is known for anti-inflammatory and anti-aging properties, so it's perfect for treating skin conditions like acne and eczema and reducing the appearance of wrinkles. 
the perfecting night oil is loaded with vitamin E and A and is rich with antioxidants and omegas that nourish skin, replenish elasticity, and reduce stretch marks. A few drops a day leave skin smoother, more vibrant, and youthful. Altogether, they are the literal dream team of skincare. Since I began using these products, I rarely wear foundation anymore. I start my day with pre-cleanse oil and my daily cleanser of choice, put on my own moisturizer, and layer it with a few drops of hydrating beauty oil. Then I put on whatever eye makeup I'm wearing that day, lipstick and loose powder. That's all. I can't believe how bright and flawless my skin looks since starting these products. Want to try out the products for yourself? Go to shopxerin.com and use the code MISSINGCAROLINAS10 for a 10% discount on your order. You won't be disappointed. Next, I'd like to talk about WOW Women on Writing. Are you looking to level up your writing or learn a new skill? Whether you focus on nonfiction or are more inclined to creative writing or want to learn how to put together a digital portfolio of your writing, WOW Women on Writing can help. Are you interested in podcasting? On March 22nd, I'm hosting a 90-minute webinar titled, You Can Start a Podcast. During this webinar, offered through Zoom, you will learn the benefits of creating your own podcast, the materials you need to get started, how to develop content that will keep listeners coming back for more, and ways your podcast can create supplemental income. I'll share examples of different types of podcasts, how to decide on a format, ways to handle the technology necessary for creating a podcast, how to develop your first few episodes, promotion and monetization ideas, and ways you can repurpose your podcast content. All written materials and resources are provided by me. I'll give you a handout with information discussed in the webinar, along with suggestions for a few different types of podcasts to explore. The session will conclude with a 15-minute Q&A. Best of all, this webinar only costs $35 and it's limited to 20 students. So reserve your spot today at wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the contest tab. I'll also post a link in the show notes. And now let's get back to the show. Finally, I'd like to discuss Erica Parsons from Salisbury, North Carolina. And unfortunately, her case is very similar to Zara Baker's. The only difference being that she seemed to have suffered many more years of abuse before going missing. Erica Parsons was born on February 24, 1998, in Mooresville, North Carolina, to Carolyn Parsons and Billy Dean Goodman. Carolyn had three other children at the time and decided she could not provide Erica with proper care, especially since Erica's father had a history of substance abuse and trouble with the law. Carolyn arranged for Sandy Parsons, the brother of her ex-husband Steve, along with his wife Casey, to adopt Erica in 2000. Erica was born with some disabilities, including hearing loss, and was suspected to have fetal alcohol syndrome. The Parsons received money from the government to assist with Erica's disabilities, along with her being an adopted child from the state. Erica only attended public school for a brief time, when she was small, before being pulled so Casey could register her as homeschooled. In 2013, 19-year-old Jamie Parsons the adoptive older brother of Erica, went to police and requested a missing persons report be filed. He said he had last seen 13-year-old Erica in the fall of 2011, when she was standing in a corner of the house as punishment. 
She told him she didn't feel good and was having a hard time breathing. She was gone the next morning, and his parents had been up and out of the house early, which was unusual for them. When they returned, they told their kids Erica had gone to live with her biological grandmother in Asheville. Looking at the timeline of this case that was put together by reporter Steve Lytle and published in the Charlotte Observer, the Rowan County Department of Social Services received a report alleging that Erica was being physically and emotionally abused in late June 2004. About a month later, Erica's adoptive mother, Casey, left a voicemail message with the Cabarrus County DSS that said Erica was living with her sister. A few months later, the Rowan County DSS told Casey and Sandy Parsons the abuse case had been closed. On March 21st, 2005, Erica moved back in with her adoptive family. In early 2008, she was removed from public school, and Casey was reported to be homeschooling her. In April 2011, the family moved to Salisbury. Police began an investigation into the whereabouts of Erica and immediately realized there was no evidence of Erica having a grandmother living in western North Carolina. They also uncovered evidence of fraud. While Erica was still missing, her parents were indicted on numerous federal charges in 2014, including tax fraud, mail fraud, theft of government funds, and identity theft. Federal prosecutors alleged that Sandy and Casey received adoption assistance, Medicaid, Social Security, and food and nutrition service benefits for Erica, who was not living with them at the time. Casey Parsons was also indicted for using the identities of people as dependents and using false information when preparing income tax returns. At their 2015 trial, Jamie Parsons testified that he and his siblings often physically abused Erica, usually at their mother's urging. She was often locked in a closet for weeks at a time and fed dog food. On September 27, 2016, Sandy Parsons led investigators to a rural field in Pageland, South Carolina. It was an area near where her mother lived. Investigators found the skull and bones later identified to be those of Erica Parsons. The autopsy showed that Erica could have died as a result of blunt force trauma injury or suffocation and strangulation. Her bones also showed she had been malnourished and had various healing fractures in her nose, jaw, upper right arm, nine ribs, and several vertebrae. Through the support of community donations, Erica was buried in China Grove's West Lawn Cemetery on February 25, 2017. In February 2018, Casey and Sandy Parsons were indicted on first-degree murder, felony child abuse inflicting serious bodily injury, felony concealment of death, and felony obstruction of justice. The two were convicted in 2016 of financial crimes that included cashing more than $12,000 in checks from the state after Erica's death. In January of 2022, Sandy Parsons was released from federal prison and sent to central prison in Raleigh to begin serving a minimum of 33 years for second-degree murder. The earliest he'll be released from prison is 83 years of age. His wife, Casey Parsons, remained in federal prison in Tallahassee, Florida until last November, 
She is now serving a life sentence in state prison here in North Carolina for first-degree murder charges. I found an interesting article titled Homeschool, Disability, and Homicide, the story of Erica Parsons. It details how parents and caregivers can hide child abuse under the homeschooling umbrella, such as what happened to both Zara Baker and Erica Parsons. The author states, This is not to disparage homeschool, which, in optimal situations, can be very good, and in some states there are options for parents to receive disability accommodations from their local public school. Homeschool law varies from state to state, but the type of lax homeschool regulations seen in North Carolina are not uncommon. If Erica had continued in a North Carolina public school, state and federal disability laws would have covered her there, and the school would have to provide her with special education classes, speech pathology, and other related disability accommodations. Instead, since she was homeschooled, the laws in North Carolina are not the same. It is entirely up to a parent whether or not they will provide disability-related education, therapy, and accommodations to a child. For Casey and Sandy Parsons, this was not a priority. In fact, it would have enabled Erica to potentially report the abuse and communicate with other adults about her life at home. The article goes on to say, If disability is one of the major reasons cited for homeschooling children, this is an issue, since disabled children are susceptible to abuse at higher numbers than able-bodied children. Deaf and hard-of-hearing children experience abuse at higher rates than hearing children, and intellectually disabled children are also victims of crime in high numbers. The combination of a vulnerable population, disabled children, with an area not subject to enforcement of their rights and protection, homeschool, is cause for serious alarm and may be a reason behind the high numbers of homeschooled children being killed. Having a disabled child can cause parents to become stressed, overwhelmed, and resort to violence, according to the CDC. And finally, the article concludes by saying, If we are going to try and reduce the number of homicides of disabled children, we have to look at homeschools. Erica was not just murdered, she was subjected to years of torture. She was starved, beaten, isolated, kept in a closet, and neglected. Not accommodating a disability is also abuse. Erica was not taught sign language. She was not given hearing aids. She did not see a speech therapist and she was not accommodated for her intellectual disability. This adds another level to her suffering and isolation. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd also like to support the show in a small way, you can buy me a coffee over at buymeacoffee.com backslash Renee Robertson. I currently don't receive any compensation for this podcast, so every little bit helps me continue producing new content. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have there at wow-womenonwriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. 
All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Daniel Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.